Welcome to Exploring Arizona Life Science Research and Biodiversity with the Tree of Life Web Project. Visit podcasts at towweb.org for learning materials to accompany this episode and to find out how to contribute to the series. I'm Lisa Schwartz, Tow Learning Materials Editor. This podcast features a lecture for middle and high school teachers on reconciliation ecology by renowned ecologist Dr. Mike Rosenzweig, a professor at the University of Arizona's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. The lecture was brought to teachers at a special symposium presented by the Tree of Life Web Project, the UA Libraries, and the Tucson Garrett Project. Due to the lecture's length, we split it up into two parts. One small addition to that introduction. I'm not actually the director of Tumamak Hill. No, I'm director of a new organization that you're going to hear some more about today called the Alliance for Reconciliation Ecology. And that makes me the director of Tumamak Hill, among other responsibilities. That's a new thing that the College of Science is trying. And it only took me two and a half years to get them to do it. So <laughs> I'm really very pleased. And I'm going to tell you some things which will lead to, I hope, some opportunities uh, for interaction, for further interaction between you guys and your colleagues and your students and what's going on at Tumamak Hill. We're re really, really excited about involving the community in the activities there and throughout the city. Now, I've, I've put somebody on the screen you probably don't recognize because he's extinct. Um, and I want you to recognize that most of us, certainly most ecologists, are desperately afraid that we're headed for a mass extinction. And we're trying very, very hard to avert it. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that you all would love the opportunity to, 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 to continue to see and to have your children, your grandchildren, and their children see the wonderful things that we exist with on this planet. And when you ask people whether that's a good idea or not, they all say yes. And yet, we are headed for a mass extinction, according to the ecologists. Why are we headed for a mass extinction? It's really quite simple. There's a system effect involved, which I want to talk to you about. And that effect comes from loss of area. From loss, it's not that the Earth is shrinking. I mean, when global warming happens and the sea rises, that'll happen too, but not by much. What's really cutting in to the surface, the land surface of the Earth, is our use of it. We are competing with all the rest of life for a land surface, and we are pretty good competitors. The best the world has ever seen, by far. The most adaptable. Um, we are no more greedy than any other species would be. I think that's a calumny, um, that we're the greediest species that ever lived. They're, they'd all do exactly what we're doing if they only had the brains to do it. The challenge for us is to see if we can turn our brains in a different direction and create some space for them because we like to have them around or because we feel a moral responsibility for continuing to have them around or for both reasons. Because if you tell me that, oh, that rare butterfly over there, that's going to be the cure to cancer, you know, I'm going to say to you, well, you know, what do we do with it after we've got a chemical to replace it? We've analyzed the chemical. We don't need the butterfly anymore. Maybe we should figure out how to turn it into house paint. 
the point is that people have what Ed Wilson calls biophilia. They love animals. They love flowers. And they have since time immemorial. The oldest Chinese words on an urn, a big presentation urn, roughly 4,000 years old, are a list of species. The oldest words in Chinese are a list of species. They're so old we can't even translate some of the characters. We can see that they have tails and ears and beaks and things like that, but we're not sure what species is referred to. It's amazing how much people love the world of nature and all the things that are in it. And we are set to lose it because we're losing area. Well, the answer to that has been, for 100 years, great. We're not just losing area. We're actually, the problem is we're losing habitat. So let's go and save the habitats in little pieces here or there. And that'll do the trick. So we can have our wild species preserved in our national parks, our reserves. We can have them preserved in our hotspots. And they'll be fine. And as long as we're willing to give up that last few percentage points, everything's going to be fine. So let's set it aside. Well, there are so many problems with that, you have no idea. The first problem is we are very bad at setting things aside. Even the term set aside speaks to what we intend to do eventually with the land or whatever it is that we've set aside. You set aside the money for an emergency, then you use it. You set aside the land for a time when you've run out of other land to use and then you use that too. But that's what we call them, at least in politics and policy, we call them set-asides. Very, very honest. Politics is not always as honest as that. The second thing that's wrong, and this, is, this would take a lot more than half an hour to explain, it probably would take 35 minutes all by itself, um, is that habitats are a, a feature of the plants and animals that live in the world. They're the ones that recognize a habitat. If you ask an ecologist, you know, what habitat is that? The ecologist immediately responds with some of the major plants and animals that live there. He or she can tell it's a habitat because it's being used by a, a very special array of wild things. And it turns out that attitude is now understood theoretically. We can understand theoretically how we define habitats. If you go, for example, to the Kwangan or the Fainbos of southwestern South Africa or southwestern Australia, you see a landscape with incredibly poor soil, the, among the poorest soils in the whole world. Nothing should really be able to grow there. And you would say, if you just looked at the soil, there's no habitat diversity whatsoever. In addition to that, if you go there, you won't see any relief. Um, in, in particular in Australia, they haven't had mountain building in the western part of Australia for some 350 million years. The deepest canyon in western Australia took my wife and me 20 minutes to climb down. We didn't even have sticks to, to, I mean, it was just a little walk. There's nothing that you would call habitat diversity 
if you didn't see the plants. The plants, which are sclerophyllous things, they're fleshy-leaved, evergreen sorts of things, are unbelievably specious. In, there's an immense array, far, far, far more than you would have predicted if you just looked at the area of this part of southwestern Australia. And after many years of research, the Australians have concluded that, guess what? What looks to us as all incredibly poor soil, relatively flat, looks to the plants like a riot of different habitats. The plants will take a couple of hundredths ppm and say, that's a habitat. And then another plant says, no, it isn't. This is a habitat. And pretty soon, you can recognize different habitats by the, by the particular species of plants that live in this kind of a variety. It's, a, it's truly amazing, but that's what's really going on. And so if we lose species, we're going to lose habitats because it's species in the long run that maintain the habitats. Yes, we need to save habitats to save species, but in a very funny way, at a long time scale, if we look at evolutionary time, it's the species that have recognized the habitat differences and that make for the habitat diversity. Now, um, ecologists have been studying the relationship of, of, of area, particular land area, to the number of species that it can hold for two centuries. It is quite simply the oldest known pattern in ecology. 1805, speech in Paris gets announced by von Humboldt, no less than von Humboldt. Here, here he is uh, talking to Thomas Jefferson, which he did do, and the two of them conversed in French. Humboldt was a Prussian nobleman, and uh, Jefferson was not. Uh, and so their common language was, per, was, was French, which Jefferson had learned very well when he was ambassador over there uh, right after the Revolutionary War. And uh, they taught science, because Jefferson was a scientist. And what von Humboldt said is, you know, Mr. President, you've got to get out there, and you've got to look at that land you just bought that you call Louisiana. It's going to be full of plants and animals. And Jefferson got all excited because he had been digging fossils. He actually helped to set up financially the Peel Museum, which was the first public fossil exhibit in, in the country. Um, and he figured that if he sent a couple of guys out there named Lewis and Clark, they were going to come back with some living sightings of mammoths and ground sloths and a few other things. And of course, he was bitterly disappointed. Um, he told Congress it was all about commerce, and they were looking for routes to the Pacific Ocean and the rest of that stuff. But what he really wanted was to see a living mammoth in his time or a living ground sloth. And he didn't. He didn't. And, uh, and it was the same Humboldt who, who understood that area contains species. And the bigger the area, the more species there are. And within a couple of decades of his announcing that principle, which, by the way, nobody had ever realized before, and which he found through hard slogging through the South American jungles. Within a couple of decades, people had actually quantified that principle and, and, and regularized it and began to recognize it, at least in plants, all over the world. The bigger the area, the more species. The general pattern that you see um, actually fits 
a log-log relationship. So if you just take the number of species and convert it to logarithm, and the amount of area, and you convert it to logarithm, well, then you see a very nice straight line. This, is ha this happens to be the relationship for the size of islands in the Antilles and the size uh, and the number of bird species or the number of reptile species. Now, if you don't convert it to a straight line, if you don't take the logs, then what you see is quite curved. And um, I don't think I brought an example of that with me. No, I did not. Okay, we won't worry about that. But, but trust me, when you, those of you, how many people teach math? Oh, great. Well, you can tell everybody else that I'm not lying when I say uh, that in a relationship like this, when you put things on a log scale and you have a slope that is less than one, uh, that the result is a curve that looks like that. That is, that tends to, to look like a saturating curve. It has a negative second derivative. It goes up like that, which means the more area you get, the fewer species you add. You keep adding species, but you add them slower and slower and slower. And that's the fundamental hope of the set-aside strategy, that we can find some point at which we can set aside enough so that we've essentially got the whole planet saved, or virtually the whole planet saved. Further additions to the set-aside bank really wouldn't help matters very much because we've, we'd have already reached this point of saturation. That's, this, that's the mathematical strategy behind it. And we have seen that point of saturation in literally thousands of cases all over the world where people have looked. You take classes out to measure this. It's now so easy and regular to do. You do it for bacteria. You do it for viruses. You do it for higher plants and lower plants. You do it for mammals, and you do it for stream insects. You do it for fishes. It's been called ecology's first law. The more area, the more species. Sort of fits. We know today it doesn't actually perfectly fit, but it sort of fits a log-log relationship like that which is to say, if you put it on a log-log space, you're going to get a straight line. And you can actually measure this slope in log-log space. And that slope is your curvature. Now, those people who are math teachers will also um, vouch for me when I tell you that if the slope goes to unity, if it becomes 1.00, then not only do you get a straight line in log-log space, but you get a straight line in ordinary space. If you forget about the logarithms and you just plot the number of species against the amount of area, and your slope is really unity, bang, it's going to be straight even then. Consider the significance of that. The significance of that is that there's no more saturation. There's no place at which the world's plants and animals are going to be safe. Every square kilometer of land that you can add to the so-called set-asides <laughs> will add some species, just as many as the first one that you added, just as many as the 10 millionth one that you add. It all becomes the same. And the whole strategy of national parks vanishes. A number of years ago, there was a convention, which is now called the Rio Convention. It was, I guess it was called that then, too. They looked at these saturating curves, and they misapplied them. They didn't realize that, that uh, the saturating curves had certain properties 
which the things they were talking about didn't have. And they misapplied them. And they said, fine, that's it, 20%. All we have to do is save wildlife and native plants on 20% of the area of the earth. That shouldn't be so hard. And we'll have 60, 70, 80% of the species saved. And if we do a careful job of selecting which 20%, then we'll have lots and lots of habitats that we wouldn't have if we did it at random. And that'll save even more. So let's shoot for 20%. That's now enshrined in public policy all over the world, at 20%. But it depends upon the saturating curve. And when you actually look at the, at the species area relationship, in systems that have to be sustaining themselves, which is systems in, of, of whole continents, where evolution produces new species, and then they become extinct. And there's a dynamic balance between production and disappearance. That's what we mean when we say sustainable. We mean that things are in balance. The positives and the negative are in, are in balance. And all the things that they've been looking at with these saturated curves were not sustainable. They depended upon an outside source for species, either through immigration or dispersal. And if you cut off those, Im those immigrant supplies, they were going to collapse. They were not sustainable on their own. So we decided to look at that a long time ago and ask what was the, what was the quantitative relationship like, and we found it again and again, there aren't too many continents in the world, so you can't, uh, you can't have too many points. Um, but here it is for the freshwater fishes of the world's continents, the tropical parts of the world's continents. And you can see a couple of things. First of all, there's the log-log relationship. It's still in logarithmic space. But look at the slope here. It's real close to one. There's, no, there's almost no curvature for this. And when we did this for other things, in some cases, we found absolutely no curvature. Um, here it is for, for fruit-eating vertebrates. Look at the slope. It's, it's even over unity a little bit. That's not significant. Here it is for the world's flowering plants. It's 0.97, very close to unity. Um, here it is for, for fossil trees in the northern hemisphere. That's a 400 million year old record. We've got data from 400 million years ago and 300 million years ago, et cetera, et cetera. 11 slices with the number of trees that are fossils that are recognized. And the slope of that thing is 1.00. It's very, very clear from theory that the slope of these relationships should be much, much steeper and much less curved than the ones you get from the other kinds of systems that people are using. But we can't predict that there should be exactly one yet. Now, other things besides area affect the number of species that are sustainable. And uh, one of those is, has something to do with climate. I mean, if I ask you, why are the tropics so rich, what would you say? I'll ask you, why are the tropics so rich? Warm and wet. They're warm and wet. That sounds like climate to me. Cool, okay. Anybody else? They're there. They are? Empty, I mean available, 
Well, we used to be available too before we built this country up the way we have, and we didn't have as many species by far. We didn't have as many species. I'm going to show you the answer, which is not even published yet, or at least it, not completely published. Um, the answer is in part because they're big. There's, uh, tropical systems tend to be very, very large, but there's also some kind of a climatic signal in there, and so the warm wet has to do with what's going on, and we've got a measurement for it today. Um, and that measurement involves the data from the World Wildlife um, Fund, which has taken all of the ecoregions in the entire world, measured them, gotten climatic data for them, looked at the area, listed the plant, not the plants, listed the mammals species by species, the birds, species by species, the reptiles, and the amphibians, all species by species, for each one of the 800 and some ecoregions of planet Earth. It's a fabulous data set. Um, and, and World Wildlife is to be congratulated, in fact, I've done that, um, it's to be congratulated for undertaking the effort. It's, ju it was, it's just a monumental effort. It took a lot of people a lot of years to get the data and took a lot of people a lot of years to put it all together in a way that made it useful. But we've got it now and we can look at it. And when we do that, we find out with 102 climatic variables, mind you, there isn't a single one of them that, that tells us what to expect of the number of species that you find on a continent. The plants, the mammals, the, the, the birds, the reptiles, the amphibians. Not a single climatic variable. Not the temperature, not the variability of the temperature. Not the rainfall, not the humidity. Not the minimum temperature in the month of January or the maximum temperature in the month of March. Not the wind velocity, not any climatic variable. Not a single one does the trick. But area does, right away. The signal of area is extremely clear right away. And here it is. Uh, those are the 11 biogeographical provinces, think continent. These are the places that are sustaining themselves by having lots of evolution inside them so that they are replacing any losses that they might have. And you can see those continents hanging on to that straight line very, very nicely. But once you do that, then you can say, well, that's got a lot of errors in it. I mean, this point over here, that's too high. That one's way too low. These two are too low, and these three are too high. Um, what explains those, those errors? Maybe that's where climate comes in. Well, that's exactly where climate comes in. If we look at the relationship of, of climate to those errors now, then all of a sudden we have a number of climatic variables that will help us predict the number of species that ought to be present in a sustaining system, a self-sustaining system. And the one I've pulled out here is the one that a lot of people um, hang on, although we have no theory for it. We don't understand it. I mean, it could be just plain temperature. Temperature works pretty well. But I pulled out something, actual evapotranspiration, which is actually the combination of, of of warm and wet. Um, if you're warm and wet, you get a lot of production on the part of the plants. If you're real dry, then you don't get so much. If you're real cold, then you don't get so much. So it's the combination of warm and wet that sustains photosynthesis for us and gives us that high productivity. And, uh, and that one turns out to be the best climatic variable we've got, but not enough better than the next one, which is temperature, for us to declare a winner. We don't know. 
It's like the National League pennant race this year. Okay, let's put them all together. There are statistical ways to do that. And when you do, the picture you get looks like this. For the world's biogeographical provinces, it's self-sustaining aerials. That is an amazing picture. Um, it amazed me anyhow. I never, ever would have believed that those points would hang so close to a straight line. And that straight line is the combination of the actual evapotranspiration and the area of the continent. Please. I'm going to tell you. Okay? Each one of those, that's just a mnemonic for the continent. Okay? So A slash NG, which is the most deviant of all of them, is Australia New Guinea. It has a quarter of an order of magnitude too many uh, vertebrate animals. Um, and I think I know why, but there's no way I'm going to prove it. I need another couple of Earths and a few hundred million years to do some experiments. Uh, it just isn't going to happen. Uh, but I, I'm ready to be satisfied with this in statistical terms. That explains 97.3% of the variation in biodiversity around the world. And it tells us, here's the equation that we use to get that straight line. That's, by the way, Hawaii, New Zealand, Madagascar, which is a continent unto itself, uh, Australia, New Guinea, the Palearctic, the Old World Arctic, the Nearctic, us, um, the Indo-Malaysian area, the African south of the Sahara, um, and, and over here, of course, the richest of all the world's places, the Neotropics. So there are just a few points. There are nine of these separate continents. We've tried different numbers and different ways to group them, but that's the only one that makes ecological and evolutionary sense and it, as you can see, does a beautiful job of getting itself explained by warm, wet, and large. That's the key. So let's look at the number that you multiply by area, the log area, to get this line. The answer, the answer comes out approximately two-thirds. Well, two-thirds is, is hardly any curvature. So we are right back in the box. We can't save the world species if we depend only on our set-asides. And that sent me to thinking about an alternative strategy which I call reconciliation ecology. Um, I am not the kind of ecologist that consistently talks about gloom and doom and then just leaves uh, and gets written up in the papers because terrible things are going to happen and that seems to be what the media like to report on. Um, I spent at least a year in gloom and doom when I saw what was going on and, and then realized, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, if we can't save the world's species if we, by, by simply restricting them to set-asides, then don't restrict them to set-asides. Find ways to reconcile human uses, because we're not going away. We need that land for productive purposes, to live on, to play on. We need it. We're not going away. But just because we use it doesn't mean that we have to abuse it. And it doesn't mean that we can't sit down. We're already engineering it. We might as well engineer it in a way that answers the needs of some of the species that need help. That answers the needs, as you can see now, of a tremendous number of species. Because the truth is 
that we use something like 95% of the surface area of the land. And that equation that I showed you before predicts that we are going to lose something like 95% of the vertebrate species on the face of the earth, the tetrapods, the birds, the mammals, the reptiles, and the amphibians, if we don't do something. But what we can do is actually quite simple, and it's the story of Tubamock Hill, and, and really why I'm here today. Uh, it is Watch part two to find out what can be done with reconciliation ecology.